You're listening to Writers Forum on WRBH. I'm Mike Tusi, your host. Today, we'll be talking with Jay Sox about his father's books, Clueless in New Orleans and Clueless the Adventure Continues. Jack Sox was a native New Orleanian who volunteered much of his time upon retirement here at WRBH, as well as at Immaculate Conception Church. He passed away in 2019, so his son Jay is here to discuss books with us. And by the way, Jay is also a well-known psychologist on the North Shore, known as to many as the pirate oncologist. Welcome to the show, Jay. Thank you. All right. I'm going to start off doing something a bit different. Let me read from one of the reviews of the books, and that might help the listeners uh, better understand what these books are about that we're going to talk about today. This is by Joshua Clark, who wrote a book called Heart Like Water. Quote, Jack Sox takes the forgotten yet achingly familiar aspects of our adolescence, the years that define us, and casts it within the unique experience of growing up in a place now vanquished with time and water. He had put in our hands that first fire that burned in our hearts, and his book leaves you smiling, wondering, and remembering the magic of it all, close quote. I, I've read both books, and that pretty much sums it up for me, right? I agree, yeah. Yeah, all right. Well, let's talk a little bit about your dad before we talk about the, the books themselves. Um, let me ask you some biographical information. Your dad was a Vietnam vet? He was, yeah. What, what, what did he do? He was an airline pilot. Um, in his later years, but he always wanted to fly, and it's touched on in the book, um, in several of his books. But he started out at the uh, Annapolis Naval Academy and then switched to the Air Force, and he got into uh, basic training for flying, and they divided the class into fighter pilots and cargo pilots, and he ended up flying a caribou, which is a small uh, cargo plane. From there, he... um, finished in Vietnam, and then became a Delta pilot. Do you know how long he was stationed overseas? He was in Vietnam for a year. That was the typical uh, amount of time you had to spend active duty over there. Okay. And one of the interesting things that's on the back of the book that I saw is that he talks about um, he met the the love of his life, if you will, at the eighth grade dance, and that's your mother. That is my mother. Uh, They were, um, he was actually in seventh grade, technically by age, but they had pushed him forward a year. So he was the young guy in the group, and he met my mom at a Christmas party. And I'm pretty sure, other than maybe a few other dates she went on, 8th and ninth grade, that was it. They were together, uh, married um, 63 years. I'm sorry, m- married in 1963, and they were married for 55 years. Wow. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit more about his time away from home. When he was in Vietnam, as I understand it, instead of writing letters home, he would actually send cassette tapes. Uh, well, we didn't have cassettes. We sent this reel-to-reel uh, old-school tape player. And um, my sister, a year younger than me, could speak a little. My youngest sister couldn't speak yet. She was born just about three months before he left. And uh, my mom would cue us up to talk to the box that Daddy was in. And so it's back and forth with that. Um, and then there were tapes that he would send, and we got to listen to part of it, but part of it was kind of like love letters to her. That's interesting, really interesting. So when, when in time, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the books. When in time do you recall your dad starting to have an interest in writing? I think I was about eight years old, thinking back, 
at that time, we moved from Lakeview to Metairie, to the house I grew up in. And when we moved into that house, shortly after that move-in, he built an addition for an office to write in and a sewing room for my mom. And I got to help him. And I think I was about 10 when I was helping him build that tongue and groove room. And it had all these little secret compartments and stuff and a big bookcase. And is that when he started using that area to write? Yes, he used that area to write, and he had an old-style typewriter. Right. And uh, I can remember hearing that because my bedroom was right across from the edition. All right, so you're still young, but when he would write stuff, would he run it by you or ask you to read it? He wrote a lot of stuff, and I read a lot of it. Some of it was for the Airline Pilots Union. Um, he wrote a, a newsletter, and he often wanted me to read it, and it was written in Cajun speak that he had kind of made up and then uh then he started writing his book his first book um not published is a, a vietnam memoir i guess of sorts and uh very very graphic when he wrote it it's been redone a few times and uh hopefully one day we'll be able to get it published okay well let's talk about the two books we're here to talk about today clueless in new orleans which is the first one Adventures in Adolescence, and then the second one is Clueless, The Adventure Continues. There's some really interesting characters in here. The lead character is a young fellow named Du Bonaguerra. Did any of these characters um, reflect you or your siblings, or do you know where your dad got the ideas for these characters? So Dewey's uh, name comes from dad's love for the Italian language, and he and I took an, an Italian course uh, no credit at UNO years ago. And I think as he was learning that and reading things that refer to uh, names in Italian and all this, he just thought that would be a great name. And he has a great explanation in the book of how he, how Due got his name. Uh, Bonaguerra comes, he loves the Italian name. And if you guys remember back in the 70s and 80s, uh, Metro scan traffic with Tony Bonaguerra. <laughs> And, and Dad um, really loved that. He ended up getting to meet Tony. Um, I became, and I'm still good friends with his daughter. And so through that, my dad got to meet Tony, uh, who died maybe about five or six years before Dad. Are any of the characters in the book, because there's a bunch of adolescent characters, reflective of you or your siblings? Uh, the characters in the book are reflective of myself, things that my father reported from his childhood, some of his childhood friends or not so friends as well as his cousin and my sisters and my mom to some degree so there's they're kind of an amalgam of all of his friends and family okay well let me see if i can get you to read an excerpt from the first book uh clueless in new orleans adventures in adolescence and tell us what tell us what you're about to read so I, I, in going through this i thought it would be good to just read the first chapter, which is very short, it's one page, and it kind of introduces you to what's happening. And after I read it, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what's going to happen, and, and you'll totally fall in love with the book. Chapter one, my childhood ended a week after my 12th birthday. Seven action-packed days. I planned and initiated a covert operation. The mission fell short of its objective, and there was collateral damage my best friend's collarbone. I made an initial foray into the complicated world of male-female relationships. The neighborhood bully used my face for a speed bag, 
and my naivete almost killed my dad. And on the night when I witnessed the event that ended my childhood, I committed an unforgivable sin. I can't find fault with the way the week opened. My birthday was cool. Dad gave me two gifts. He had taken my bike to the shop on Tulane Avenue for a custom paint job, and he had installed the most incredible light ever on the front fender, a light that never needed batteries. And I, Dad and I lived in a half of a shotgun double, an architectural style, which is all New Orleans. My two great aunts, Rose and Annie, owned the house and lived on the other side. Dad and I moved in there right after Mom's accident. Yes, this is New Orleans. People drink and then they drive. Mom was on her way home from work, waiting at the bus stop when the drunk driver hit her. My aunts helped Dad and me. For the birthday, even though it was not the season for it, those two sweet old ladies had baked my favorite, a king cake. They also had placed a crisp $5 bill on my pillow. My tribe, we weren't cool enough to be considered a gang, had pitched in to treat me to a movie, a movie that had given me an interesting idea as to how to increase our limited knowledge of anatomy. This is really, you know, writers often say you have to have a good hook to bring you in, and this is perfect. I know when I read it, I said, okay, this has got like every little thing in it that I can think of when I was younger as an adolescent, and it's got a great hook to bring you in. Now, in the book, there's some real escapades that the kids engage in. Do any of those, and, and the one that comes to immediate mind is the, the guys trying to climb a tree to look in a window to see some guy's girlfriend or girl or sister or whatever change. Did any of that come from your childhood? The, kind of. Okay. So um, there's a movie, uh, The Summer of 42, and it was one of Dad's favorite movies. And I can remember the first time I was old enough to recall watching it. I'm sure I'd probably seen parts of it before. But there's a scene where the three buddies are trying to peek in a window. Um, that, is, that is a recurrent theme in, in a lot of books and movies. And this is Dad's version of it. There is a story about my father and some of his friends... I don't know if they had to climb a tree or were able to just kind of hang themselves up on the edge of the windowsill, peeking in the shower at his cousin, Judy, who is deceased now, um, but uh, had a lovely figure as a young girl. And he kind of alludes to that in the book because the, the window they're trying to peek into is his best friend's sister taking a shower. So dad was partly himself and partly the best friend. It's funny, it's summer of 42, so you had Oski and what was the other character's Hermie? name? Hermie, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a perfect adolescent growing up movie, as, as is your dad's book. All right, one of the other things that I notice, a theme, if you will, in the book, is there's some religious overlay here. There's Sister Mary Mercy and Sister Mary John. Talk, talk a little bit about um, your dad's involvement with the church. So my father was a devout Catholic, and he spent his entire education in Catholic schools, uh, grammar school in, in New Orleans, and high school uh, also in New Orleans. And he was very dedicated to working at Jesuit Church on Barone Street, which he helped revitalize it starting in the 70s. Um, my sisters and I didn't realize how long ago mom and dad started going to church there 
my mother's mother was married there and so they had familiarity with it but but then back then it was a vibrant parish church now it's in in the middle of the city but still has a parish and has a calling from all over the city especially since it's been refurbished and um and cleaned up if you will Okay. And so in this book, in both books, there's a little bit of religion that floats in, a little bit of Catholicism that floats in as well, right? Uh, actually, almost all of his books have something like that. There's usually a nun or a priest as one of the central figures. Um, and, and there's also uh, some mystery that occurs and even a murder. Right. And one of the characters in the book, the, the lead young female character, Cheryl, mm-hmm. um, do you know if she's modeled on anybody in particular? It's curious. Um, I think it's mom. And the reason I think it's mom in some part is because at the beginning of their relationship, mom had gone on a few dates. And there's an incident where that happened with Cheryl, but it gets complicated in the book that didn't occur in real life as far as I know about kind of a sexual assault thing, but I think he's doing that for the story. Mm -hmm. Um, He could spin a yarn like you wouldn't believe. And a lot of times he embellished his stories to the point he would say, well, remember that time I took you fly fishing when you were a little baby and I had you in a backpack? Well, I'm 57. There were no child backpacks. There's no way in the world my mother would have let that happen. But dad, over the years, convinced himself that that was really how the story went. Did he, you know, you raise a good point. So some of the things that are in Clueless and maybe his other books, did he tell these as stories to you before he ever wrote them or perhaps after he wrote them? The stories were there before he started writing. And a lot of these, his genius on writing is making these stories into one big story Mm -hmm. and it really um it captures you um every one of his books had i don't even have to look at them for more than a second to know four or five of stories or real life events from my father or myself um and family growing up that that occurred well what he does really well is and this is a sign of a really good writer is his themes are universal you don't have to know something about, for example, Catholicism to appreciate the story. Um, you have to have been an adolescent to do it. But many of the things he does are, are really universal. Can we get you to read another um, another chapter for us or another section for us? Yeah. Let me, uh, let me flip over here to the next one. And while you're looking, just for, for folks that are listening, all of these stories, or these two, I should say, are set in New Orleans. And um, if you are from New Orleans and you know landmarks from way back when or places from way back when, you'll recognize uh, many of them that are in here. So there's a a sense not only of time, but there's a sense of place as well. Go ahead. So um, uh, this is uh, Chapter 9. The day had been so much fun, we had forgotten why we had gone fishing. Trouble met us a block from Jimmy's house. Joey, the bully in town, was leaning against a tree, been looking, been looking for you two little fruits. Where you been hiding? Evidently, Mick had drawn some mental line in the sand. We got nothing to hide from. You mess with us and you wake up in jail. This was not going well. I stepped between them. Fishing? Joey, we've been fishing. He sneered at me. You didn't get enough the other day. You want some more? I said no. 
my my mother beat the heck out of me. His fists were clenched. Joey, you don't want to go to jail. I was working hard. I ain't afraid of jail. Never said you were. I got quiet, a positive sign. He exhaled, looked at Mick's feet, and changed the subject. What's in the sack? Snapping turtles, Mick answered. We're down for the sack. You want them? No, I shouted. Snakes, Joey. They're all snakes in there. He stepped back and gave me a furious look. Don't mess with me, you little shit. I ain't messing with you, Joey. We have snakes in the sack, cottonmouth moccasins. B.S. Y'all don't have enough balls to catch no snakes. He snatched the sack and shook it, turned it upside down, all the while I was shouting, no, Joey, no. As the snakes tumbled out, one hit Joey right in the leg below the knee. He screamed and dropped the sack. The other snake slithered away, but the one that had struck his, his leg, it must have caught its fangs in the fabric of his pants. The snake was the biggest of the bunch, was twisting and shaking, trying to get loose. Joey had fallen to the ground and was making futile attempts to grab the snake and pull it away. We all screamed. That's not exactly correct. Fact, Tony didn't scream. He took charge. He must have pushed his fear of snakes out of his mind because he snatched the gunny sack from the ground and used it like a glove. It's a rough texture allowed him to grab the snake and yank it from Joey's leg. Screaming and sobbing, Joey tried to get up. Fat Tony pushed him to the ground and sat on his chest. Stay still, Joey. We gotta stop the poison from spreading. My tribe had studied the first aid section of the scout book and in moments of boyhood bravado, we called about we called about how we would do it. Save a pal's life after a snake bite. Fat Tony had established leadership. We followed the, his direction. Jimmy, run to somebody's house and call the cops. Mick, you and Dewey catch the snake and cut off its head. Joey should have it with him when he gets to the hospital so the docs will know what, what, uh, so the docs will know it was a moccasin. Mick pulled the machete from the swamp bag and went after the snake. In two steps, he was on it, whacking it into pieces. Guess we better get rid of the others too, I said. The smaller snakes had a head start but suffered similar fates. We returned to Joey and Fat Tony, just like in the book. Fat Tony had used his belt to make a tourniquet over the bite. He threw the pocket knife in my direction. Anthony, go over to that house and run this under the faucet. Even Joey, who continued to cry, listened to Fat Tony. I cleaned the knife blade under the stream of water and returned it to Fat Tony. He remained on Joey's chest, effectively blocking Joey's view of his leg. Fat Tony had cut Joey's pants before he had tossed the knife to me. Mick and I looked down at Joey's leg. The main puncture marks were clear, angry red slashes against a pale background of Joey's leg. There were other smaller scratches near it, probably from the snake as it was trying to shake loose. We could see the leg was changing color. We thought it was the poison taking hold, but learned it was evidence of effective tourniquet. Fat Tony mouthed instructions to us so Joey would not hear what was about to happen. The orders were to hold Joey's arms, he was going to flail about at the next step. Probably because his family owned a grocery store with a bunch of, which a butcher shop, Fat Tony's knife was the sharpest one in the tribe. It was on par with the barbershop razor. He made a deep X over the main bite and attempted smaller cuts over the other scratches while Joey cursed, punched, 
and fought to get free. Fat Tony turned to face him. His voice was loud but calm. Joey, if you stay still till the cops come, you get to live. You run around and let the poison race through your body, you die. Your choice. Fat Tony pushed himself off Joey. Joey looked at his leg. The cuts had done their job. He was bleeding, more blood than I had ever seen. His eyes were the size of Mardi Gras doubloons. He looked at us, eyes darting from one to the other. I'm going to kill you, little effers. Mick grinned and said, only if you don't die first. That was the last we heard until the siren started. All right. You know, one of the things that comes through in the books as I read them is your dad's sense of humor. Um, and I, I was just looking at the back of one of the books, and this is really kind of sums it up, and I'll ask you about his sense of humor in a second. On the back of the book, he wrote, the nuns in grammar school taught me to love Jesus. The priests and scholastics, priests in training, at Jesuit High attempted to help me understand Jesus. In my first year at the U.S. Naval Academy, the upperclassmen taught me how to talk to Jesus, as in, Jesus, will this year ever end? <laughs> talk a little bit about his sense of humor. Uh, Dad um, had a great sense of humor. He was always ready to make a pun, and we, we played around with words all the time, and if the two of us were together, we would play off of each other. He loved telling a joke. A lot of his stories have a joke hidden in them, uh, kind of like his uh, statement on the back of the book. Yeah, it does. Um, all right, so your dad retires at some point, right? So, yeah, he retired in the early 90s mm -hmm. um, with the intention of visiting grandchildren and uh, my sisters who both live out of the state and also writing. And he, he and mom did that for a good while. He then went back to work in real estate uh, just before Hurricane Katrina and started uh, still writing a good bit. He was probably reading here uh, around the mid to you know, 2006, seven, I guess, is maybe when he started doing that. He started um, selling real estate with um, Gertrude Gardner and many other different um, companies around the city uh, over the years. Um, still just loved writing. I, I think we're up to somewhere around seven books now that he's published. It's an interesting story, the first publishing. Uh, I had, I live across the lake and any opportunity I had to come to the South Shore for something, I would call and say, hey, mom and dad, y'all wanna grab dinner or something? They always wanted to. I was coming across for a book signing. A friend of mine had written a book about the racetrack, uh, Tim Rice, and uh, he was signing books at Audubon Bookstore, I think it's called. And I said, well, come on, we'll go, and then you might meet somebody there. And he was, for some reason, reluctant, but we went and with the intention of having dinner after. Well, he met uh, Arthur Hardy, who published for uh, Tim, and they hit it off famously. And Dad sent him, sent him uh, Clueless uh, to read, uh, and uh, Arthur read it, and they had one or two conversations, and then Arthur disappeared. And Dad figured he just didn't like it. What had happened is Arthur had emergency surgery. He's out for six weeks. They run into each other just by chance at a restaurant, and uh, that's when it started. And Arthur helped Dad uh, get these books uh, printed or digitized uh, over the years. And he's got some other manuscripts that are still out there? He's got some... He's got several on Amazon, and then he's got three 
at my good friend Michael Tusa's house because he's going to help us uh, figure out how to rework some of it. Okay, and so then we'll we'll be looking forward to getting. That's a good shot. We'll be looking forward to getting those uh, those out. Um, let's see what other things. Your mom and dad. I'm excuse me. Your mom. I'm certain is listening. And your uh, sisters are listening? Oh, everybody, the whole family, the whole office, um, even the um, I'm recently affiliated with Mary Bird Perkins Cancer Center, and even the, the Cancer Center in Baton Rouge is going to tune in. That's great. Well, look, this is about all the time we have for today. Um, you've been listening to Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and we've been discussing two books by Jack Sox entitled Clueless in New Orleans and Clueless, the adventures continue with his son, Jay Sox. Thank you for coming in. Thank you very much, that was fun.